0: is in jeopardy hey lady how about it stay with her help her for she has begun to feel the awful horror of the hunger John Blaylock the hunger has given him everlasting life until now pray for him Miriam Blaylock she feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her.
3: What have you done to
1: me?
0: Forever and ever.
1: And life signs terminate right here.
0: beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting—the hunger.
4: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Christine Makepeace.
5: Hello, good to be here.
4: Also back in the booth is Ms. Cat Ellinger. Hello. We conclude Shocktober 2022 with a look at Tony Scott's The Hunger. Based on the book by Whitley Strieber, the film stars Catherine Deneuve as Miriam, a being that's lived thousands of years. When we meet her, her companion John, played by David Bowie, has been with her for a few hundred years and suddenly starts to age. There's maybe one person in the world that might be able to help, Dr. Sarah Roberts, played by Susan Sarandon. She won't save John, but she'll definitely spend a little time with Miriam. We will be spoiling The Hunger as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Christine, when did you first see The Hunger, and what did you think?
6: That's a fun question, because I don't I don't really know. I feel like it's always kind of been around. Um, my mom was a big David Bowie fan, my mom was a big film fan, and it was probably on in the background well before I should have been seeing it. There are visuals in it that are burned in my
5: brain from childhood. It's always just kind of been there.
4: How about you, Kat?
5: I saw this probably mid to late 80s. So I was in my teens. I thought it was boring. I just didn't connect to it at all. I just didn't get it at all. I loved that Bauhaus were in it, but then this kind of existential, slow, sort of abstract you know, film comes along. And I was watching stuff like Fright Night and The Lost Boys and you know that kind of vampire film and so i thought oh this weird like weird vampire film with david bowie in it and it was only later on probably maybe 10 years on when i was in my 20s that i finally got it like it really took a while to grow on me it was interesting listening to the director commentary how he sort of said it fell flat at the time it was weird it was just weird it was so out of sync with everything else and Obviously, I wasn't that mature either, so I didn't quite understand it. You know, it's like, where's the fangs? Where's the people getting eaten? You <laughs> know, where's, where's all that? And it, I just thought this is a weird film. I don't like this. Obviously, I love it now, and it and it really did grow on me over the over the years. But it was it was an odd. I don't want to say it was ahead of its time because it's not. It, it it's really its own thing. So. It definitely wasn't in sync with the rest of the stuff that was happening at the time. So, you know, it's one of those films, I think, if people haven't connected to it, it's worth going back to and seeing if you like it again, because, you know, it, it, it defies so much of the convention, I think, around vampires. I think it's great.
4: Yeah, I probably rented this when I was in high school and was probably more interested in the Susan Sarandon, Catherine Deneuve stuff than anything else. But there were some really indelible images. I really was fascinated by the way that it was edited, the use of the soundtrack. You mentioned Bauhaus, but then the score itself. Probably one of the first times I ever heard a waterphone. This is before they became abused by reality TV shows, where when anything bad happens, you hear that little strain of the water phone saying that something is uh, about to happen or someone's just slagged somebody off. But revisiting this the other night, I felt like I was right back there in the early 80s, just enjoying this. And, and I feel like I shouldn't like this movie because it feels like it's so style, maybe even over substance, but I have a great time with it.
5: See, I don't think it is style over substance. I think when I first saw it, it felt kind of like style over substance. But then, no, it's like this really sort of sad ode to existential vampire problems. So it does have the substance. And I love how it looks now. Like you said, it is like walking into a portal to another time. All the uh, the curtains, the blowing curtains. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> that that blue tin on everything oh i love
4: it the curtains the birds this is years before john woo was going to express his bird fetish and it's so strange because tony scott is such a bizarro director because he's got that really artsy side that comes across in here and then he's got that crazy slick commercial action movie director that he does and like Days of Thunder, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and then they kind of collide at times, Whereas, like those scenes with uh, all the feathers flying in uh, True Romance, or just other things that he does where he's just like, it feels like an art film, but it's in the middle of an action film, what is happening right now? And this is very much on that artful side. This is what landed him in movie jail for a few years. He couldn't do anything until he then ends up... Uh, directing some i think i think it was called top gun i I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that movie but
5: (laughs) do you know i've never seen top gun i've I've never seen top gun oh good (laughs) i'm in good company and i never will
4: i've seen it one time saw it in high school never went back didn't revisit it didn't see the sequel What he did for, I think he says in the audio commentary, what he did for, like, lesbianism in this movie, he did for homosexual men in Top Gun with that volleyball scene.
5: Yeah, obviously I've seen the clips, but I I can't fucking stand Tom Cruise. I just, uh, I saw Cocktail when it came
4: out. That was bad enough. He's saving the movies. He and his ex-wife are saving movie theaters right now. Please stop. Yeah, Tony
5: Scott's a weird one, isn't he? He is. I forgot he did Beverly Hills Cop too. Is that the one with Joe Pesci in?
4: No, you're no, thinking, of not, thinking of the lethal films. weapons
5: films. See, this is what I mean. I don't pay attention to this crap. The Hunger was such a statement piece, and to me, it really signifies though the coming of the MTV generation of vampires. So then you had, you know, Fright Night wasn't really that because it was trying to be nostalgic, but. Definitely The Lost Boys, that idea of the, the vampire becoming the rock star, which is like the coolest thing, Near Dark as well. This was the first one, although I'm not sure if that's what he's actually was going for, although he's been working in, in music videos, obviously, hadn't he? But it was like suddenly vampires became cool in a very modern way. It does start with The Hunger, even though I never gave it that credit at the time. I don't think. And obviously with Bowie in it as well, he was like a, you know, huge, huge. Well, he's always been huge, but in the 90s, everyone forgot
4: he existed. And
5: uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? He was pe- he was at his peak then around this period.
4: Tin Machine left a little to be desired sometimes. It was, and it wasn't even Bowie. It was one of the guitarists who was at Adrian Ballou. I just couldn't stand his guitar playing there's also dancing in the streets that everyone forgets as well (laughs) which they played in the theater when i went to see teen wolf so i don't know why
5: see everyone's like oh the 80s were so cool man there are lots of examples why they weren't
6: they were yeah they weren't that cool (laughs) people do it with the 90s now too
5: i'm like i was there it was not that cool (laughs) (laughs) 90s were definitely not cool no
4: I love the editing style of The Hunger, and I love this opening where we're going back and forth between basically three things. We've got Bauhaus playing, we've got Miriam and John, the Deneuve and Bowie characters, who are really giving off a swinger vibe as they're at this underground club looking at these uh, this other couple, take them back to the house, and then when they start to introduce the third storyline of the monkey murdering the other monkey this movie does not shy away from shock cuts when it comes to audio either there are a lot of great things where we've got one thing happening on the soundtrack and then we we're just cutting into it kind of abruptly and i really appreciate it
5: the screaming animal that comes in in yeah, you can really tell. I always think that the music video is is cinematic. It is its own sort of form of experimental film, but it's kind of discarded, I guess, by cinephiles as if it's not legit. But if you look at someone like Gaspar Noé today, huge background in music videos uses music videos techniques in his films, and I think it's totally legit and it's really interesting because it's such an experimental. Medium in the early 80s was when it was really taking off. Like, I love music videos not as much as heavy drain heavy drains like the oracle on music videos <laughs> she's, she's seen them all But you can really see that influence. that He was bringing that into cinema And it's almost like a silent film the first sort of ten minutes. You don't really get much in the way of dialogue It's all images. It's all cuts and like you said the use of this sound and very much like a mini it could be a Bauhaus music video. And I think that was why some people didn't see it as legit, because I often see that next to his... or like video director, as if that somehow made him lesser. But I I find this part in um, history where it's all coming together, like films, music, videos, it's all sort of, you know, you've got bands making these films, like The Wall, for, for example, you know, you've got this whole crossover. I didn't realise the cinematographer on this came from Breaking Glass, which is another really good example. So it totally feels in that spirit. But I think that whole oh, music video thing was used at the time by certain journalists to say, this is somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. It struck me as so cinematic, like watching it back now. It's pure cinema because there's no dialogue, no nothing. You don't know what's going on, but yet you know everything that's going on. It's also one of the sexiest openers to any film ever, that seduction. But then it's got all this violence in it and this crazy sound, and it is perfect, I think. If anything, though, then then the film sort of settles down, and it doesn't really... But that opening is just like, yeah... It is one of, and this is might be controversial,
6: but it is one of the best openings in, in cinema. It's perfect. And I completely agree with the, we shouldn't be speaking negatively about music videos. They are mini movies. If anybody listens to me on social media, I scream about uh, music artist The Weeknd a lot in his music videos, and they're essentially like little horror movies. And it, it just, I think there's a grand tradition of making beautiful cinematic masterpieces in these little three, four, six minute shots. And I, 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 I truly agree. I don't think it's appreciated enough.
4: I don't want to be a party pooper, but I don't think that Tony Scott directed music videos. I think he was purely a commercial director before he did this.
5: Did he not? I thought he did music videos on their do. He uses, he definitely does a lot of music video stuff in this. That flying curtains thing was such an eighties thing.
4: But it was also very commercials. This was also very perfume commercial is what it felt like a lot.
5: Because you had the crossover then of music videos and commercials and then into film. It was like a it was like a weird brave new world for for a slight moment there, like a decade. And then it all got separated off again and people go, Oh no, 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 that's not but You'd get, like, really big names doing commercials then as well. It's when Fellini started doing commercials, which was nuts, in the 80s.
4: When I want to say, Deneuve was, like, the face of, what, Chanel or something, and then she's all dressed in Yves Saint Laurent in this again. And these Yves Saint Laurent outfits, we talked a little bit, because she was dressed by YSL in... Belle du Jour as well. So these outfits are wild. And that outfit at the beginning at the club where it's almost like a little army hat that she's wearing and those tiny little sunglasses and Bowie's in his sunglasses. We've got a lot of people wearing sunglasses at night here. And They're the swinger couple from Europe who are just like, "Mm, oh, Anne Magnuson. Yeah, why don't you come on back to my place? Anne Magnuson, almost completely unrecognizable in this. And John Stephen Hill as the dude as well. But it's just like, wow, I had a hard time. And then, yeah, it's great when they've got those Ankh pendants around their neck that double as knives. And the way that we, yeah, to your point, we don't see fangs. We just see the those entering the body and then tying that to the fangs of the monkey and just that we have this visual rhyme between the monkey and david bowie especially later on when we see this rapid aging happening very smart stuff
5: can i just intersect or come back to this he did direct music videos but it was later on i knew he'd done music videos but he did fucking danger zone for
4: kenny loggins well (laughs) that's also because of the movie because of top Gun.
5: But he also did one more try for George Michael, which is a lovely video. Yeah, so it was mixing my time, time line up. I want to say that costume of Miriam, though. Every year I see women dressed as Miriam for um Halloween. I always love to see women dressed as Miriam, but it's so iconic now, the little hat. She almost looks like a weird, perverse flight attendant or something, doesn't she? <laughs> She's like... And and then you just see, you see that look emulated so much now because she's become such an icon just from that one scene, which just shows you how strong the visuals are in this film, that they just, you know, resonate. Uh, but I've always seen women doing Halloween as Miriam, and it's always like, yeah, I couldn't pull it off. I can't believe I just said Kenny login. Sorry, I feel a bit ill now.
4: It's okay. Kenny and I have a long history. It's all right. And it's through the attack, the animal attack, that we get to know Sarah Roberts, the Susan Sarandon character. Kind of nice that she's a doctor, that she seems to know her shit. She's seen on TV later, being interviewed. She's got this book about aging and genetics that's going on. I really like her character, though she doesn't have a lot to do. I wish she had a little bit more than... I'm a doctor and Clifty Young is my boyfriend. And it took me a long time to realize that they were boyfriend, girlfriend, really, until he shows up at the house and looking for her.
5: That is a lot more prominent in the book. Very detailed about what this research is they did. But it's almost written from the boyfriend's point of view, which is interesting because you don't see a lot of the boyfriend in this. He's like this very, very marginal figure in the background whereas in the the book it's written more from his point of view and Miriam's point of view as they are observing um, and there is a lot about this research you know how they want to find the, the cure to aging and there's a lot of stuff in the clinic I find that boring in the book I'm glad they kind of cut it down because it does get way into this scientific you know and yeah I'm glad it's um marginalized they show you everything you need to see with the monkeys and the fact that it's gone fucked up but the monkey thing there's a lot about that monkey thing at the beginning of but like pages and pages about what went wrong with this monkey and they're talking about it and it is a bit yeah i'm glad they sidelined that a little bit in this because it does get a bit of a chore I mean, as
6: fascinating as the cure for aging is, I don't think that that's the compelling part of the story. So I, I'm glad that I don't have to wade through potentially to things that wouldn't have aged well, too. Like, ironically, no pun intended, but it wouldn't like terminology that wouldn't have aged well, things that we know now aren't true. Like, you know, when you see somebody trying to hack something in 1999, it doesn't really make that much sense now. But Uh, I'm glad it skewed away from that. I haven't read the book. I I honestly haven't had a desire to.
5: It is a chore. It hasn't aged. It's just very sort of scientific gobbledygook from 40 years ago. And it would become the, the sort of 80s equivalent of the Matrix flip phone.
4: Yeah, I think they give us enough. I think it's just fine. We are studying aging. Boom. There it is. Is it genetic? Is it this? Is it that? We don't need to know much more. We just get this little group of scientists that she's hanging out with i really like the rufus collins character i think he's uh pretty good just kind of hangs out in the back and makes a little witty remarks other the other female uh doctor i like her a lot she kind of reminds me of like the friend from can't stop the music yeah we're given enough and then yeah it's kind of a surprise it's one of those oh clifty young is in this movie I'm surprised he doesn't have a bigger role and then he shows up a little bit later I'm like oh he finally has to see oh and then he's gone.
5: Yeah in the book Miriam actually keeps visiting the clinic and she actually they study people there they study their sleep so I think she she goes to the clinic she stays there and basically because she's doing a grooming thing again so it doesn't really make any sense to have that in the film though cuz it would have been like 3 hours long. Uh, the other significant change they made was John when he's disintegrating and I don't know whether this would have worked but it would definitely made it more of a horror film and I'd be interested to know why they dropped this. As he's running out of time, he beca- one of the side effects is he becomes more aggressive like the monkey. So we see him kill the sort of protege in this but he becomes this mad, violent, sex craze, obsessive stalkeries. Trying to break into the fucking house, Miriam can't even sleep. He's, you know, and he he becomes this like really dangerous figure. They totally tone that down. I don't know if that would have worked with Bowie though. He's not the type. I like his passive sort of. He's kind of philosophical about it, isn't he? When he's turn, when he's aging in the clinic, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I gotta go." He's on, like, but but in the in the book, he's like this wild animal. I I couldn't see Bowie doing that. It, it just hasn't got that sort of presence. So maybe it was to do with him playing the part, or it would have turned into a crazy sort of violent horror film if they'd kept that. Though,
4: that's weird because we were just talking about "Let the Right One In" last week, and in the book, the uh, Ellie's familiar basically—he's a he, pedo. Beca- he well, he becomes a vampire at one point, and or it's almost like a vampire slash zombie, and tries to rape her like just becomes this like massive force you know g- going across the countryside tracking her down so he can finally have sex with her
5: yeah he's obsessed isn't he? he's like this weird crazy Pete. i do absolutely love the the original film in the book though but i can see why they toned bits of the book down because they are a bit like he's like jo- he is like that familiar he's he, he is just so obsessed with miriam and he realises that he's dying, but also uh, the acceleration of the ageing, they can't sleep. So he starts to go mad and it makes them more aggressive, which is what happens to the monkey. All we get of it in this is, oh, the monkey killed the other monkey, Betty. or oh, he loved Betty, but he ate her. And so that happens to John. And for whatever reason, they've removed that part from the film, which makes it a whole other thing, you know? But he is kind of like the guy and Let the Right One In because he will not leave Miriam alone. He's like trying to get, she kicks him out of the house, he's spying, he's appearing at the window, he's breaking into the, and it's this like mad obsession, like I have to have you. It's like totally a sexual thing. Yeah, I don't know, I like it the way it is. I like it the way it is. It, the, the, it, to adapt it another way it would be a whole other film. Yeah, I don't think he would have worked with Bowie, he's not got that presence. She needs like Jack Nicholson or someone. <laughs>
4: Yeah, instead he just becomes Dustin Hoffman from Little Big Man, and that's about it.
5: Die? Well, doesn't die. Just goes to languish in his little coffin,
4: which is one of the most horrific things I can think of: is being stuck
6: in this coffin,
4: (laughs) having consciousness, but eventually your body just decays so much.
6: Literally my worst nightmare. When I vilify death in my head, it's that. It's just being completely aware and just laying there. It's awful. And I think that's why when I saw it so young, I don't know that I understood it when I first saw it, but the visuals were, I was so taken by them. And this idea of this like bad death, this negative, scary, awful death was really resonant with me. And and I think if they had made John... A, a lot more aggressive and, and less empathetic than you maybe would have lost how bad you felt when he started like in the clinic when he starts to rapidly age that's absolutely terrifying.
5: That's a good point actually because you don't you're glad when he gets trapped that is a really good point I didn't think of that. Um, you, instead you feel oh that poor guy <laughs> yeah
6: it's it's awful and and there's a part of me that gets a little irritated with Susan Sarandon's character. Of course, I get why she doesn't believe him. But her, him, her just leaving him there to wait and age is the most terrible thing she could essentially do. She's she's damning him by not paying attention to him. And, and there's something really haunting about that. And yeah, I I do feel so bad for John. and And I just, oh, poor baby, pay attention to him, listen to him, even though there's nothing that can be done. So I'm glad he's not an asshole.
5: Yeah he's vile in the book You don't feel any sympathy for him uh, You also get a lot more Of them as a couple And they have this kind of libertine past It's all about fucking And they're a bit like um, Angel and Darla if you watched Angel, When Angel and Darla Would have those flashbacks of the good old days Where they'd eat whole families After having sex with them They're kind of like that and there's a lot of that in the book But weirdly you don't really see much of that in this you see little things of john looking back but it's in this like sad way where he's being seduced whereas the flashbacks in the book are much more visceral they're much more sexual but he is he's had this like 100 year obsession with miriam like it's always been miriam the script that you sent mike was interesting because they had more of that in the original opening as well which i didn't couldn't read all of it but I found that a bit interesting how the original opening had the modern Keppel and then they had John and Miriam as the in the eighteen hundreds or whatever and they had these sort of flashback sections to them dancing, I guess at a classical sort of ball and then the nightclub. I thought that was interesting. Again, that would have been a difficult one to
4: make work though. Well, I think they tied it into the chamber music that they're doing, right? And that it was kind of like they would go from the modern scenes to the 1800s using that music as a bridge, which I I appreciated. And then we have one shot of her in the movie as an Egyptian, and we get to see another one of her lovers, I think. But there's not very much to set us up as far as how old she is, other than that maybe one shot. And at first, I'm just like, well, why is he getting old, but she's not getting old? And it really didn't dawn on me like like you both have said the first time i watched this movie there were a lot of things where i'm just scratching my head about it and i'm just okay i'll enjoy how pretty this looks
5: yeah in the book there's so much more about her um background she is really kind of like vampire-less statue, it's not as cool but she's come from this ancient time you get this backstory about her when she's turned she rescues this crucified guy off a cross and takes him in as her first lover And they always die so it's a lot more explicit it's a lot more you know explaining every single thing oh this is what happens to the monkey's dna and this is what's happening to john and you know it does really over explain it which i guess it's a novel and so a novel is a totally different you are going to get much more explanation in a novel whereas i appreciate seeing the film before reading the novel because I really like the mystery of it all. You know, like you said, you only get little flashes. You get one of her in Egyptian. Now, that there is like a, that's a whole chapter in the book. The Egypt years, you know. <laughs> and all these various lovers that she's had as well. And the fact that she'll groom one while she's waiting for the other one to die. But never tells them. She never tells them what's happening. Whereas in this, John seems to have an awareness of what's happening, which is, makes it even more sad like he knows he's sort of resigned to it. Whereas it comes as a total shock to him in the book. And then he gets angry. He gets like really angry about it. Whereas this John is kind of like, well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he's going to get next.
4: I almost wonder if there should have been more at the beginning to, to show the normal relationship between those two, because we start at the club and then after the death it feels like it's very immediate as far as like, oh, I'm not sleeping or I'm not feeling right. It feels like he's going to that clinic really soon thereafter. There's not a lot of this is how we live together.
5: Yeah, that is the book, though. That is the That does happen in the book, but they don't go to a club. They go to a house um, and they kill this young girl and it's been planned. And John realizes something is wrong straight away because he doesn't get his usual revitalization they can't sleep but like you said i think with this sort of slower pace i don't think it works as well in that case it would have been nice to see more of them around the house and stuff you get it in the book through flashbacks through all these uh john thinking about their life stuff like that you don't really get it in this so you don't really know much about them as a couple Uh, Whereas in the book you get much more of that. But it does pretty much start with him thinking, shit, something's wrong. Like, I I don't know what's going on. But it becomes then more about Miriam going to the clinic because she wants to find this cure. She thinks this doctor will be the one that can stay with her forever. Because it is very much like, is it Streba? He said in his interview with you that he read Interview with a Vampire Obviously a big part of Interview the Vampire is that existential, you know, if you're here forever, who spends that time with you? And so you get this abusive relationship. I know I said I hated Tom Cruise. I love Interview the Vampire's top five <laughs> film for me. And the fact that he's in it, I don't, I don't know. It just, it's a it's a complete contradiction. But the book is, the film's like that, the book is like that. This idea of uh, would you spend it, who would you spend it with? And so you get this very suffocating sort of character the vampire the stat trying to make this louis stay with him forever and blackmail him and manipulate him and so miriam does seem like a a bit of a progression from that character in the book you don't see as much of a manipulation in the film though but she is really manipulative in the book not to the point that the stat is the stat is become like a sociopath he's he's not yeah Whereas she, she still has a lot of feeling, like she does a lot of feeling for John, but, she, but she's very narcissistic. She's very much about, well, oh, who, who is going to be with me? I can't be on my own. So I need to get this doctor because this doctor can cure herself and then I'll get my forever companion. So it, it is very much a, I can see the influence of interview in, in it. But it goes in a slightly different way. I think Strieber then brings all this scientific stuff into it and all this other stuff, all this other weird, esoteric ass- stuff.
4: Well, I don't know if it was apocryphal, but I thought I heard Tony Scott say that he was interested in doing Interview with the Vampire and then ended up doing The Hunger.
5: That went through so many hands. It wouldn't surprise me if Scott was, was on there at one point. Because they were trying to get that made from, like, when it came out in 76, the, uh, the and I think, was it Paramount owned it? They had all these different the stats, and it was like a whole thing, yeah. I remember
4: the dream casting of that, you know, where it was like, oh, well, we can have this person and this, imagine that, you know, but it was probably all the way back to, like, well, we'll have Burt Reynolds as the stat, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have Clint Eastwood as Louis,
5: <laughs> They were gonna have Alan Delon at one point, I think. Alan Delon was one of those people, yeah. But but it was um yeah, that wouldn't surprise me actually. Tony Scott would have been good. But on obviously the the one that came out by Neil Jordan's perfection, so But it's the same thing, isn't it? That idea of the vampire as this immortal who is lonely, and that goes back to Sheridan the Fanny's Carmilla, which is all about loneliness. And it goes back to, in film, Dracula's Daughter, although you don't see it an awful lot until later on. And Daughters of Darkness, when I wrote my book on that, I did quite a few parallels to The Hunger, because The Hunger seemed like the natural successor to Daughters of Darkness, because in that you've got this age-old bathroom who's kind of washed up and bored and needs a companion, and she's looking for a new companion, and, you know, it's the same thing, this... um. Aristocratic entitlement and also this uh sort of narcissistic love, which I which I really like. It's sick. It's got a sick feeling to it. Somebody's gonna keep you and then they're gonna put you in a coffin for eternity. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and she really wants a new companion very quickly. There is no rest between here and like you mentioned, she was kind of already grooming, and I use that word intentionally. No,
5: it's total grooming.
4: Alice, uh, Cavander, played by Beth Earlers. And I found it inter- interesting in the audio commentary how Tony Scott talks about how he tried to make her more, um, androgynous, that her haircut was like a boy style from the time. And I was just like, well, that, that's kind of interesting. Cause I mean, Miriam, she's not a human. So there's no real loyalty between men and women or anything else. So. I was like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting that you're going for this with this Alice character. But, man, it's one of those, like, she's so annoying in this movie. (laughs) I wish I liked her more.
5: (laughs) I like Alice. She's nice. She's got Moxie.
4: She's sassy. Big time sassy. She's
5: got this wide-eyed thing
6: going on. She thinks she's very cool because her best friend is this very rich, learned, fancy lady. And I think, like, that's I would totally have that vibe
5: (laughs) if I was friends with Miriam wouldn't you though if you had Miriam became your friend when you were like 13 that would be like everything wouldn't it nope. no no one could tell me house. anything Yeah, she's interesting because again in the book there's a lot more about her and this, this whole plan so it, it's not so much that Miriam wants her young but she thinks John's got a few more years so she's starting she thinks if I start with one who's quite young this time and I train her up and I educate her I can get the perfect Acolyte. It's all very manipulative. And then, of course, John kills her. I like that she's quite innocent because it's like the lamb to the slaughter, isn't it, that scene? That's one of the few scenes where you actually get sort of horror tension because he's the wolf in sheep's clothing and she thinks he's just this old man. And she's talking about John. Oh, you know, you look like him. You've got his eyes. It's like Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, oh I'd never noticed that before. And she notices these little, little things about him which is cool, and then he just kills her and you get that little, that is so
4: music video, the blood across there. <laughs> yeah, somewhere meatloaf's like, I want my residuals. Slow motion blood sh- across the musical notes. <laughs> the Alice character is really what motivates the Dan Hedaya character, this Lieutenant Allegrezza, who basically doesn't really even need to be in this movie. I love Dan Hedea, but Man, he doesn't need to be here at all.
5: So he comes in once, and then you don't see him for the rest of the film. And then he comes in at the end, just confused, and stands in that room, confused. <laughs> like, 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 oh, okay. And then it's like, what
4: was the, what was that? That real estate agent knows way more than our detective, ladies and gentlemen.
5: Yeah, but he doesn't even like questioning me. Just stands there, looking, <laughs> confused. He wanted to hang out with Miriam too,
4: I think. That's what it Though I have to say, Dan Hidea as a detective, I was getting real Columbo vibes off of him. I was just like, man, he could probably play really good like Columbo's brother who's also a detective.
5: Yeah, but he's like lazy Columbo. He is he just- lazy Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't got the tenacity of Columbo. He doesn't even realize the kid's been killed there. Columbo would have had the whole thing. Cerste, he'd be going to piano lessons at Miriam's. He wouldn't let it go. He'd be down the clinic, he'd be there, (laughs) waving in the window. Hey, just one more thing. He did have that sort of look, though. I guess that New York sort of urban... I don't know if that was deliberate.
4: Yeah, he really tries to ground the movie in New York, even though this is so obviously not New York here kind of an any town, it feels like, more than New York, even though, you know, I could pick up a few London things as we're going along. And then the end of the film, I'm just like, where the fuck are we at the end of this movie? No,
5: I'm glad you said that, because this time, because you'd sent over the script, um, there's a, I wrote this down, actually. So in the script, they, they're actually in England at one point, and there's this whole thing about a flashback, and you can see road signs, obviously, as they're traveling to london and it starts in chooksbury and then Chipping norton chooksbury's eight miles down the road from me and i was like oh my god like why is chooksbury in this fucking script it's like this tiny little town but it would probably have been a village then but i was watching the film and i was thinking with that in mind because i'd made a note of it and thinking where is this film like where is it supposed to be it could be anywhere it's just urban it's like this non place it's weird obviously it's america somewhere but then then sometimes you think are they in america or is this like what is going on here yeah i I wonder if that was
4: intentional i'm wondering if that's how rufus collins got into the movie because he's almost always in british movies if he's just one of these american actors that lives in britain or a British actor that can do a, a spot-on American accent. Throughout the audio commentary, Tony Scott's just like, yeah, we're trying to find American actors and really make this into an American film. And I'm just
5: But like, it doesn't feel like an American film. That's what I mean. It doesn't... Apart, that's why when the cop comes in, it is a bit like, oh, are we in New York? Or what's this? And then he goes again.
4: He's <laughs> gone. That amazing house that they have that just goes on forever and when they Mm. show that they've got and you know me i always love to think of houses as people so she's got all the ghosts in her attic and then she's got this fire down below as the song goes with the furnace where they dispose of all the bodies i'm just like my god what a huge place this is
6: the size of the house really took me out of the that new york feeling but there were some times where i bought it and then other times where it was jarring, like, oh wait, this we're 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 in America. This is this is supposed to be like urban New York. But uh, to me, that kind of added to it because of that ethereal nature of Miriam and John, like they kind of are timeless, ageless, placeless. And it felt like it, when, when Dan Hidea shows up, it is really jarring for many reasons. Uh, but to me, that was almost like it regrounded it. Oh, no, this is reality. This is a real place that, you know, people live and have lives. It's not just this this vampiric opera that these two are living out Like in this real world. It, 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 so I think it adds to it. I don't know if that's intentional, because I did listen to some of the the commentary and it was clear that he Scott was concerned about, like, we need this America, New York. But I don't think he actually achieves that. But I think it's fine. I think it's fine. <laughs>
5: No, it is very much sort of out of place, out of time, isn't it? I think that adds to it because you're not really quite sure. The book is definitely more American. There's like a European section and then there's an American section. Whereas this was all over the place. But I like that. I like that it's kind of weird in that way, that you're not really quite sure what's going on but that house man i need that house that how much would that house be if it was in new york like 45
4: million <laughs> <Millions>. <laughs> million you might be going up into the billions with this yeah. thing. this is fucking crazy as of this recording i haven't recorded the um, interview with michael thomas the co-screenwriter on this i am so curious why because cat the screenplay that you read was by james costigan who ended up switching his name to Ivan Davis on this screenplay, which he had done before uh, for a few movies. Um, Haywire, uh, The Corn is Green, Broken Vows. So more towards the end of his career, he passed away 2007, but his last actual credit was 1988 with Mr. North. But I don't know why he changed his name for the screenplay and i don't know what michael thomas brought to it because the screenplay that we read feels very close to what we get as far as i was concerned
5: yes yeah, so I, I read through it and it was interesting it was only like that opening really and um i was wondering whether they have like more john psycho in it or well, i didn't i didn't get to read the whole thing and i will I'll go back to it because i love reading screenplays But yeah, some of the descriptions and the descriptions of the characters and everything was very spot on. So it is interesting when you see these different drafts and stuff and who made the decision and why. You know, some of it could be budget, some of it could be this. I did want to talk about this though in the like trajectory of of vampires because it's the go that time and place thing. The thing that always I always end up talking about 1970 and 1971 in vampires because. It was when you got the whole lesbian vampire cycle kicked in off the back of hammers the vampire lovers which was a period film but you then got all these European filmmakers and people like you did the Velvet vampire but you basically got loads and loads of low-budget filmmakers came in they didn't have budgets to do period vampires so they started to make vampires in our time count Yorger was was a leader in that and it was like somebody picked up a, a rock and said, oh, hey, vampires are immortal, so we'll just have them now. Like, why are we doing all this period stuff? They can just be now. But the interesting thing about those films is the vampires always felt out of place with the time because they were this ancient thing, sort of trying to fit in but not really quite getting it. And that interview with the vampire is kind of like that. The fact that Louis has lived through all this time but he doesn't feel part of the time whereas the stat has adapted he's adapted over the years to each generation but louis is kind of stuck in this past and it was only really with the hunger and then you have got the lost boys and fright night and things like that that you suddenly had modern vampires vampires that actually understood what was going on and they weren't this weird sort of relic that it was out of touch and from this like majestic and ruined thing you know There this sort of old-fashioned thing from the past, they were actually very much part of now. And I was trying to think, in it, and it does start with The Hunger. There are sort of modern, like Count Yorga, though, but Count Yorga's not part of the 70s. He's this old, old vampire, you know, trying to fit in. Even Bathory in Daughters of Darkness is, you know, this old... She's an old aristocrat. She's like old Europe. And so even though Miriam is supposed to be kind of old Europe, even though she was Egyptian, so I didn't figure that she started in Egypt, she's like that old Europe. She doesn't feel like, I guess, because to go back to your point, she was the face of like Chanel and everything at the time. She was the fashion icon. You know, if they'd done this, say, 10 years later, Madonna would have might have been the one that was Miriam. Do you know what I mean? Like... Deneuve was huge at this point she was like she was modernity and fashion I don't think that was intentional though hearing about Scott talking about his casting was very interesting because he talks about how her face was everywhere and stuff like that and Bowie was obviously Bowie at the time as well huge sort of music icon so it is almost like a conscious effort to let's make this for now But then the irony is, because it was so now, everyone was like, what the fuck is this? This, These aren't vampires. (laughs) These aren't vampires. What are these? These are like, you know, weird. This is a weird film.
4: These vampires remind me of the vampires from They Change Their Faces, where in that it's very much like we are in control of the world. They're almost like the Illuminati. But... Just the whole idea of the haves and the have-nots. You know, we were just talking about how much would this house cost? If if it were really in New York, if it were today, it would be huge. She has accumulated wealth and and corpses in the attic, but she's accumulated wealth through all these years. That moment when Susan Sarandon walks into the house and we see the statues and the artwork and the busts and all this, and it's just Like, how much does she have? It feels like she has done very well for herself.
2: What about you? Me? You would think me mostly idle, I'm afraid. My time is my own. That's great. Plenty of time for your
6: friends.
3: Lots
0: of
5: lunches and dinners
1: and cocktail parties at the Museum of Modern Art
4: she's the idle rich just collecting money and eating off of the poor basically
5: i'm glad you brought up *Hanno cambiato because it's i'm obsessed with that film but there is this sort of strand you get it in daughters of darkness you get it in that film there's another film that sounds like a jallo, but it's not it's called the bloodstained lawn about this couple who sort of use these uh tramps and people, that hippies that they lure in is a a blood factory and you've got thirst. But this whole idea of the uh, aristocracy milking, like literally milking the blood out of unfortunates. But this idea of entitlement, somebody, uh, I think it was Bridget Cherry wrote an essay on Daughters of Darkness and said the Bathory there, the, the reason that character was so transgressive is because she was basically Byronic. She was a Byronic County hero and she had this immense sort of class entitlement to prey on people and this cruelty. And she felt entitled to it. And that didn't happen in female characters. If you look at the female vampires before that, you've got adaptations of Carmina. Dracula's daughter is sort of all like, oh, it's a curse. I want to be freed. I can't stand this eternal pain. Daughters of Darkness comes along. You've got a head. Female vampire, he kills and stalks because she fucking loves killing and stalking. She's rich. She just looks at these people like serfs, like cattle. She's above them. And you didn't see that with women. And so, again, to go back to the hunger being a natural successor, and this is definitely true of the, the book, Miriam and John, they like sex murder games. They could almost be as paraserial killers when we first meet them. We don't see any fangs. And it's like they're a pair of serial killers who go out and kill people and have sex and they enjoy it. And it really throws you in that way because it doesn't... Um, like Daughters of Darkness, you don't see fangs. They actually stab their victims, which I appreciate. Uh, there's no vampire law. nobody coming out and going, you can kill them by doing it. You know, don't get some carrot the cop coming in and going, hey, has anybody got any holy water? You know, you don't get that. It's Here's my very, crucifix yeah. and her going... <laughs> So, there is this like immense sense of like the libertine and this class entitlement that Miriam has, which I, lo- I love that in female characters. So they're never given that, they're never given this chance to just be evil. You know, it's always got to be for a reason, with the female vampires, because like, they're under a curse, or they're tormented, or you know, got Countess Dracula where she just wants to fuck the younger man, so she's obsessed with looking younger this whole thing, and Daughters of Darkness comes out and you have this like really cool female vampire, it's like, I like killing people, and I've turned it into an art, and I'm very rich, and I'm very manipulative, and there's no excuse for that. And and Miriam is kind of like that, apart from the fact that she does get punished, whereas in Daughters of Darkness, it's more ambiguous. You know, the film in between those two is John Ronan's fascination, where you have this group of rich women who could be cannibals, could be vampires, but they just love blood. they got loads of money, they live in this big castle, they lure people there, and they eat them. And they feel entitled to do that, because there's a similar line in Fascination about ladies of leisure, actually. We bring that up, how they're like ladies of leisure. But ladies of leisure love the blood, obviously. So I really appreciate that. There is more of it, again, in the book about Miriam's sort of... um, She isn't from aristocracy, I don't think, because she's so old. She's accumulated massive amounts of wealth. So even in the Egyptian times where she's rescuing people off crosses, she's got this big villa and all these servants and, you know, she's just living the life, man. Normally it's like the male vampire comes in, you know, Count Dracula, and he's, like, you know, biting the women. It's all about his power. And then the women turn into these like brainwashed sort of minions You get staked in in the first 10 minutes. They're always the first to go, hissing in the corner. I do love those old Hammer Draculas, obviously, but it's like, yeah, but then you get these like really cool, like Daughters of Darkness, where you've got Dalphine Serig, another massive French actor, maybe it's something with the French, but in these amazing ball gowns with feather boas and sure. Short... <laughs> And then you got Miriam who's the same in this amazing house with like, Oh, look at all my priceless antiques and my designer clothes. It's like, yeah, this is the vampirism we need as role models, not, uh, these people camped out in a fucking church <laughs> and they're scrabbling
6: around for bodies to stay alive. I think it's worth thinking about. And I think that probably is why it maybe it played so different in the 80s as it as it does now there's things that it that, that movie is doing that are now extremely common like it's not surprising to see it's not it, and it's it's refreshing to see a different version of of, of vampirism like and that's something that media now actively tries to do oh well, let's have let's have this you know oh they don't actually holy water doesn't matter they can go out during the day and I think though as you kind of said Kat there were we were still in the infancy of the modern 80s vampire of the modern vampire and I don't know if, if not having those tropes present the the holy water the sunlight the garlic I think maybe people were like well I don't know what this is I, this isn't a this isn't a vampire, because that's not what vampires are. But now we're like, oh, it's so refreshing to see things kind of go against that grain.
4: When we finally get to the end of the film, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when we get to the end of the film, I don't know what the fuck's going on when it comes to <laughs> like all the corpses are coming back. It's great. I love these corpses, too. These corpses look like they're right out of a Hong Kong horror film. I'm just waiting for Lam Ching Ying to show up and start putting yellow pieces of paper on their heads, but they, they just kind of menace her. And then she falls down the stairs, uh, down the stairwell and just is screaming forever. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't get this. I like it, but I don't get it whatsoever. And how does this work? And then suddenly Susan Sarandon in a ending that was needed by the movie studio, apparently was suddenly back alive. So, Like, okay.
5: Living the life, though. Living the life. She then got the life. She got the life. You know, so yeah, we need a happier ending than this. Can we just have um, Susan Sarandon as the evil vampire with some girl that she kisses on the head, obviously? (laughs) I like that bit, though. It's like, it it is like that. And it's like this weird sort of creepy zombie movie, but as if it was in a Sisters of Mercy music video, because there's curtains everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> They're all blowing around and she's just screaming and it's like, this is great. But I can see why at the time now that was probably like her, huh? like, you know, why I had that whole thing. But my, uh, for years, my only memory of the film was David Bowie sat in a waiting room. I was, oh yeah, that's that film where he sits in the waiting room for the whole film. That's how That was my takeaway. He's only in that waiting room 10 minutes.
4: It's like waiting for Godot, but it's just him.
5: But that's how I remembered from it. I thought he was in this waiting room the whole film getting older. Then I watched it back again. I was like,
4: hang on. He's only in this waiting room for two scenes. (laughs) It's a very important moment, though. I mean, that's what I remembered a lot from it as well, especially him leaving and her not recognizing him and him just slagging her off saying like, uh, you said you'd be right with me, and now look at me. It feels like every time I've waited in a waiting room.
6: Do- yeah, doesn't that tap into some like deep existential shit, though? Like, just watching your life pass doing this inane thing? It really, I-, I think it speaks volumes that all three of us have deep memories of that part. Maybe not the other stuff, but like I- I- I'm telling you, I- I've thought of it often, just like waiting in line at the grocery store. Like <laughs> Like, what if this is it for me? What if this is my forever?
4: (laughs) We talked about being locked in your own head as being like the ultimate hell. Being stuck in a waiting room forever is right there with you. I mean, that's that's Beetlejuice's hell right there.
6: There's some scary stuff going on that isn't necessarily the stuff that I think people would say, oh, that's disturbing. Like, oh, that monkey ate that other monkey. That's disturbing. I'm like, oh, that man has to live with himself in a box for all eternity. That's terrifying.
4: Well, yeah, and you realize, oh, there's when she brings him up there, there's eight other coffins up here. What the hell is going on? Yeah, it- keep
6: him company. It's, 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 there's a cruelty to it that and i like miriam and i think that miriam go get yours lady i love it but there is a cruelty to what she does and it, that that is that makes what happens to her at the end like i'm kind of okay with it like i do like her and i think i think she's great and actualized but also awful like it's just terrible because especially if they don't know that this is their eventual fate it feels greedy to be i'm upset that i only had 300 years or whatever but if you thought you had forever and then all of a sudden, it's you. It, you see it rapidly leaving. It, it, it has to be terrifying.
4: And I don't even know if Susan Sarandon knows that that's in store for her. But after she has her whole thing, that uh, her transformation, where she really does look like a drug addict, she looks like she is just fiending for a fix sweaty and just nasty looking and trying to get clifty young to be with her and stuff and there's that other like kind of low-life lothario that's around there and i think he becomes a meal for Catherine, and she ends up getting clifty young to come in for susan sarandon um and i'm sorry i keep calling her by her actor name not her character
5: Don't name I. I keep calling it but <laughs> she
4: but and then she's Sarah, so it just kind of you know, Sarah surrounded, yeah. So I'm getting because we don't see that death on screen, we just hear the thump. But I think it's just so terrible for her that she just murdered her boyfriend that she takes things into her own control. So the end of the movie, where she's back and now she's living the life, it's like well, he kind of just undid everything because she's finally taking control of the situation and murdering herself so she doesn't have to end up in a box or she doesn't have to end up ever eating anybody again.
5: Yeah, I like the fact that the actual turning is horrific. And again, that goes back to Interview with the Vampire. But trying to think back, most of the vampire films, vampires are just turned. And then they're just vampires. But with that it's like this horrible painful thing and i feel like that's become a trope now the resisting the first feed thing the the lost boys did it you know once you feed that's it you'll turn forever and it's like you know she was trapped in this sort of no man's land of not quite a vampire that that was definitely a a, that had to be an 80s thing that came along surely that you could be, so you could be turned and then saved at some potential boy. <laughs> it was like a non-committal thing. Before it's like you're a vampire now, but the vampires would instantly be into it. And this, she does look like a drug addict. That when she's on that bed and she's like shaking, and oh my god, it's just horrible. And so it shows the more painful side of vampirism, which I I really love. I can't think. If anything, that it was in that was like that before. So it all starts with the hunger. I'm saying it's like Daughters of Darkness, but it is like this midpoint between that and the shift. Then you get to now, like Christine said, now we're used to that. We've got like only lovers left alive and we are the night and... uh and was like, yeah, we love the arty vampires. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Where were you in 83? Come on.
5: <laughs> well, I was there, but no, I didn't see it in 83. It would have been probably
4: maybe 89. Well, I'm just saying nobody saw it in 83. I mean, this was a, kind of a flop. And if it wasn't that much of a box office flop, a lot of critics came for it. And we're just like, oh, this is uh, all smoke and mirrors. And it kind of literally is.
5: It did get written off as a sort of cheesy music video type thing. I don't think Bauhaus were as big at Like, Bauhaus are, like, almost untouchable now, though. But then they were just, like, this weird little underground goth band. But now was like, oh, Bowie's so cool. Bauhaus so cool. But at the time, I don't think Bauhaus were that revered either. So it was like, what the hell has this weird guy done with this weird... <laughs> with esteemed actresses like Catherine Deneuve in? The thing I love about Deneuve, though, and the thing I love about Susan Sarandon is the fact that neither of them ever took the easy route with their role, with their roles. I mean, Sarandon, at this point in her career, she was, like, picking every odd-bod fucking film. I just covered Pretty Baby with her in. That was a bold choice. <laughs> Pay the grooming prostitute mother who sells your kid off into, you know, sex. But she, she's interesting as a Hollywood person. Because she was established by this point, but she would almost deliberately just pick very strange films.
4: Well, she even says that in the commentary, that she just would go for the unusual choices, go for the ones, and that she really liked this because of, before they changed the ending, she liked this because of the whole idea of her being a drug addict that resists the drug. That she says, no, I'm not going to live this life and takes it into her hands. Though I have to say, like, don't go into that commentary expecting Susan Sarandon's going to be there on, uh, be there a lot because I think it's about what 10 maybe 15 minutes that they stretch over the entire 90 minutes, they just drop in little bits.
5: I do like that she says something like, I'd rather be in an interesting failure than a kind of. I respect that because it was a risky thing. I mean, even though Lesbian Vampires was so established at this point in Eurocult, like 70, 71, you have so, so many lesbian vampire films come off the back of uh, the vampire lovers. You know, Vampires Lesbos, Sorts of Darkness, Blood Spattered Bride, The Velvet Vampires, like loads of them. And so that was already an established thing in Eurocult, but this was a big film. This was like a Hollywood film, and you've got the lesbian vampire, bisexual vampire in it. So it was a kind of risky thing to do at that point. And she's just like, oh, this looks interesting. I'll do that. (laughs) I got total respect for that. Total, absolute respect for that.
4: Yeah, I think she's terrific in this. I always enjoy her in pretty much anything that she does. I don't know if I enjoy her Twitter very much, but whatever. <laughs> Separating the art from I've the artist. Her. I've never
5: seen it. I've never seen it. It's
4: best not. I to. won't
5: look. Don't go down that <laughs>
4: rabbit hole. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> but yeah, no, she has been in some really fascinating things over the years, and I really like her in this role. And she just seems to have. She doesn't have a lot to do, but she has a personality that she brings to it, and I appreciate that.
5: Yeah, cause she's only really in the last third of the film. In the book, she's all the way through the book, but she then becomes a major character, sort of, I don't know, probably about a third of the way in. But in this, she sort of really isn't, but then you don't really get much about John and Miriam's relationship either. The, like, the first two thirds are really about John's death. <laughs> becomes like the overwhelming thing and that's almost like an afterthought whereas it's the reversal in the book he is dying in the background and she's like get rid of this like annoying thing you know she's trying and he's killed the protege so she's like oh damn i've been working on that one for the last two years I'll get this doctor so she's going in and she's grooming this doctor I did want to say with the book I never finished it because the book uh, nothing against the author is entirely written through almost almost entirely written through Miriam's point of view when we're talking about the Sarah character Susan Sarandon's character It's either Miriam observing her or her boyfriend observing her, but it is so objectifying to the point where it was like, this is this is just boring, this is just tedious now. You know, just really lengthy, long, tedious descriptions of the hair on her legs and, you know, a bead of sweat on her neck. And Miriam, there's this one scene in the book, which is kind of, you get a flash of it in the film, where she's hiding out in the flat. But she's like in there sniffing the fucking toilet and shit. It's like, I can't read it. I don't know if she actually sniffs the toilet, but she's, you know, she's acting like a stalker and it's like, there's so much weird sort of male fantasy in this. It's just like a bizarre, even though Miriam is supposed to be a female character and Strieber said, oh, you know, it was empowering. You feel like you're reading a straight guy who is observing this woman who knows nothing of women, not a woman, I know she's not supposed to be human, but not someone emulating a female, then an alien or whatever she's supposed to be, emulating, who's been around for hundreds of years, would understand women. No, a complete alien male being is what this reads like, because it is written by a guy, so I couldn't finish it, and I'm glad that's not in the fucking film.
6: That's what I was about to say, because it feels alienating because you just have because I'm going to call her Susan Sarandon's character, too. Susan Sarandon's character is is not in it a lot, but she has she has a presence. She's she's in the film. The film has a lot to do with her and the way she acts and interacts with these other characters. So to only observe her through like other people's eyes, I think really undercuts
5: that character. It's annoy. It becomes annoying. And obviously I knew the film well before I went to the book. And so I knew the Susan Sarandon as that character, but it was like, I can't imagine this, this character just seems like, you know, this thing that is observed from a distance by other people who basically want to fuck her. Uh, and it became so irritating. I in fact I just abandoned the book. I enjoyed the bits of the book where it told you about John and Miriam and their, weird little tales of what they got up to in the 1800s and you know that felt a bit like interview with the vampire but then when it got into that it was like oh this again like another five fucking pages of miriam staring behind a thing it looks like, i don't want to read this i just don't i can't and i i rarely put down a book so yeah sorry if you're listening to this <laughs> I feel bad saying it though because it did give birth to this beautiful film, which I love, and so I don't like to diss. I, I don't like to diss the source material because it wouldn't be here without that. But I don't know. I guess once you know a film well, and then you go to the book after, you're always going to be a bit biased. But even if I, it was completely. I wouldn't. I would. I don't think I would have persevered as much if I didn't know the film. I would have ditched that in a couple of chapters. It was like reading Harold Robbins.
4: I didn't read the sequels that are out there for this book, but I read a lot of the reviews. It seems like the third book is reviewed a little bit better. And I found it interesting that the name of the book is, um, Lilith's dream, a tale of the vampire life. So of course, Lilith, we'll be talking more about Lilith in a couple weeks here when we talk about, uh, nightmare alley, but, You know, this whole use of Lilith's name is kind of interesting, though. The Last Vampire from 2001, the reviews of that, just nobody could say anything good about that book. So I'm kind of hesitant to start that one. Um,
5: (laughs) I couldn't even finish the first book. I'm not going to read another two. (laughs) It's interesting. They don't make more of the whole Lilith thing in this, actually, and um, just the goddess thing you know cuz if you look at the origins of vampires they all go back to like lilith and lamia and this idea of the dark goddess and th- that is kind of hinted in the novel cuz you don't really i don't think you really get to know her origins but it's some you know it's not what we traditionally think of as a, as a vampire i guess i think he's going for that other species thing definitely this myst- mystical well, with I'm not saying aliens, but some, you know, it's, it doesn't seem as rooted in that that Christian stuff that we get usually with a vampire. So there's no churches, no crosses, no. But to see the whole dark goddess thing, that would have been a good thing for Miriam, I think. Like to bring more of that out, it's hinted, isn't it? And she's got the little Egyptian necklace thing, and but again, it's left ambiguous for this.
4: It's interesting in the book, they talk a little bit about Miriam's mother, who's Lamia. And I'm not sure if she's supposed to be the Lamia of Greek myth, but Lamia is an interesting, uh, yeah, mythical exactly. Figure.
5: Lilith and Lamia were like the two prototypes for the what became the vampire, you know, these succubi, dangerous, powerful figures, not these like sort of weird little hag types or acolytes to a male force or things like that they were seen as dangerous Um, I got a whole book actually on Lilith and Jewish mythology and it's fucking amazing
1: Throughout every country and every culture there is always a cautionary tale told to children a tale of a monster or a demon that preys on those who misbehave and today that tale is the story of Lamia or Lamia the ancient Greek equivalent to the boogeyman. Lamia was not always seen as a monster though In fact, it's quite the opposite. She was a queen in the region of Libya and the daughter of Poseidon. She was loved and admired by many, including Zeus. But like many of the women that Zeus loved, Hera became extremely jealous of the queen, and when Lamia and Zeus had children, she began to plot how she would remove the queen from the equation. What Hera did to Lamia does vary. In some stories she kidnapped and killed her children, and in others she made Lamia kill her own children. This punishment alone was not enough for Hera, and so she made it so Lamia could never sleep, cursing her to endlessly walk the earth, mourning for her lost children. Lamia being driven mad, attempted to gouge out her own eyes, but she was unable to do so. She had gone from a respected queen, with loving children, to a hermit-like figure, ridiculed and shamed by the people that once respected her so dearly.
5: There is, like, hints of it, but it doesn't really go that... I think, um... I've I've heard little bits from Streber and he seems to have like an interest in all that, like mythology. and You feel there's an attempt to kind of tie it to that rather than this more biblical notion of a a vampire as this conception of sin. Because it's always about the vampire as sinner, isn't it? Or the vampire as a, a proxy of a satanic figure, which is what Christopher Lee became. He became more like the devil as the Hammer films went on. Um, and they're seductive and they're this, but it's very much, and, and you do feel with Strieber that he's trying to do something different. and He's trying to link it to like ancient tradition. She's been around like all these centuries, but it doesn't really get into the, the nitty gritty of it. It doesn't really, I would have liked to have seen more of that. I think that would have made it different. You know, it, it sets it up to go that way and then it gets to, where we meet sarah and then it just becomes this endless voyeurism and you're like you know the stuff in egypt was actually interesting (laughs) more of that (laughs) i don't want to be watching someone spying on someone in a toilet
4: (laughs) it's really weird we have talked around the seduction but we haven't talked about the seduction i mentioned that this was prime viewing for a young boy uh to see this and to enjoy these two gorgeous lesbian vampires but i really love the whole thing of how once miriam's got her hooks into susan sarandon that she starts to see her everywhere that the phone rings and nobody's there the phone didn't actually bring that uh she we get that great flash of Deneuve's face in the mirror at one point. Just, I really like that. And then, See, that
5: montage was like a little montage of the whole stalking shit that happens in the book. And they could have just done it quickly like that. It's like, now this is how to do it. We don't need like 52 pages of this. Just get it done.
4: Well, and for me, it doesn't even feel like she's really stalking her. It feels like this is just Sarah projecting and thinking about Miriam nonstop and not being able to get away from her thoughts. So I didn't even picture that. It was actually Miriam there stalking her at all. Yeah, she's like
5: spying on her, she's sneaking in. But I tell you what it reminds me of in this case is more Carmina and this idea of, and Sheridan the family's Carmina, Carmina can infiltrate her victim's dreams and she can sort of manipulate them that way. And so she sticks to her victims and they become obsessed with her in this almost romantic way. And it's all about that, this manipulation. And, and with Carmela, it's all about that she wants the companionship, but she's also slowly feeding off them and killing them. But she has this compulsion. And so it, it does recall Carmela in that way. But it's interesting that Scott never brings Carmela up from what I can remember on the commentary. And there is bits of it in it. It's, it's almost as if she appears in dreams to her. Because Carmina can just penetrate people's dreams. She can like fuck with her head. She's got these mind powers. She can do all this stuff. And outside of the Velvet Vampire, that's rarely used in Carmina. Like, Dryer did it. But he did a very weird take on Carmina with an older lady. <laughs> vampire. It's not really used in that way. So I took it as that. But then knowing the book, I could see it was also condensed this um, every, everywhere that Sarah goes. Miriam is there. She's turning up at the hospital and staying as a guest. She's watching her on this camera. I think there's a scene in the book she's spying on her in the room and she's staring into the camera. And it's all very like that. Uh, so I'm glad they condensed it because it works a lot better. And it's creepy as well. That face in the mirror is creepy. It's like...
4: <laughs> It's like one of the few jump scares in the movie.
6: And it manages to keep the focus on, on Sarah instead of if it was a true stalking kind of sequence, it would, it would, we would be focused on Miriam. And, and I like that we get to spend more time with Sarah and see how she's reacting to, I guess this like, you know, kind of spell that, that Miriam's put her under. And and we get to see her relationship with that as opposed to just like, you know, someone following her or making her feel things like it it it, it, it doesn't t- it sounds like the book versus the film that that Sarah's agency isn't really in, in play a lot in the book and i like that we don't we we that doesn't really come across in the movie it, she does feel like a fully realized character that that while she is being manipulated is making choices for herself and is present
5: yeah it is really about her reaction to it whereas in the book it's all about Miriam observing and then when she meets Miriam, she can't stop thinking about her then. To go back to what Mike said about the sex scene though, so it was after Alpha, uh, there's a friend of mine called, the Great Gambin calls them het lesbians. The vampire lesbians are full of the het lesbians, so it has that. The thing I really love about that scene is how Sarandon is so fucking awkward. And you can tell that she's not entirely into it, but she's kind of being manipulated into it. And so it doesn't do that whole sort of, you know, the, the more Euro cult one where you've got Soledad Miranda whipping her tits out and they're all rolling on, which I fucking love those films. But this feels more like it's more predatory. And Sarandon is sort of laughing and sort of... it, But she's so fucking awkward as well. And I think she felt really awkward doing that scene. But it translates the scene that she's kind of somehow being manipulated into it. She's not totally into it, but she's kind of forced to go along with it. And I don't know, it gives the scene a little bit of a different uh, a different slant from the usual. You know, it's it's all about the predator getting their own way and tricking her into this thing which is what it what happens in the book and then she finds out what's happened to her she's like what the fuck have you done to me and she's fuming about
4: it just those quick shots of the blood exchange and i read one essay where the author was just adamant that there was no way no way that the aids crisis could have been dealt with in this movie at all there's it just didn't even exist at this time. And it's like, yeah, AIDS was around for a lot longer than you, you realize. I don't know how much AIDS would have influenced this movie, but please just don't say there's no way in hell that AIDS had nothing to do with this film, especially it's 1983. There's a blood exchange going on uh, in this movie. You've got John going through all this shit that he's going through. This really feels like it, whether it's, Intentional or not, it's kind of like the thing, you know. Like that might have been too early to talk about AIDS as well. But gosh, you can read it like that these days. And-
5: Rabid as well, which was seventy-seven. You know, a lot was. I think the reason why vampires to me in gothic. Obviously, I specialize in gothic, but it's always like with the vampires because vampires have been used so much for satire, for social commentary, for. You know, nothing against zombies, nothing against that, but the fact that the vampires have been so adaptable to talk about all these different things, it's impossible to separate sex and stuff from the AIDS crisis in the 80s because it was everywhere and it was terrifying. So, yeah, I don't think it is intentional, but you can actually look at I mean, I read it into Rabid, and that was way before people were talking about it. You know but around that time you know they they were just hammering out public information messages and you know it was just like what is going on it was a terrifying thing of course it's gonna come up in vampires
4: (laughs) the music in the seduction scene is wonderful and i love that miriam is actually playing the piece that uh this scene is uh, set against she's playing that on the piano and then when the music comes up and it's just swelling and we've got those curtains that we're talking about and susan sarandon with her black underwear and them looking at themselves getting that reflection back in the mirror This kind of like i don't know if they're playing into vanity or what's going on i really think that Deneuve's character looks so much like Selrig from Daughters of Darkness in this one particular scene. I could have sworn that there was a moment in, like, I don't know, The Naked Gun or something where that music comes up and it suddenly becomes like an attempted seduction scene because that music for me just gets associated with this movie so much that I can't hear it without thinking of these two women going at it
5: i love how you've got this in great like see i've just got this mild sort of and i've seen the film loads but it's just like awkward surrounding, nice curtains yeah you've got like the whole thing
4: it's an opera to me at that moment
5: <laughs> i'm loving the the enthusiasm this film though was for for guys of a certain age it was uh yeah this was the one i think for a lot of guys especially mainstream as well you know everybody else the generation before were often to get vhs tapes of dodgy little jess franco films or
4: some people had versions of um, vhs tapes of fast times at ridgemont high that would have worn out spots i think i've seen ridgemont high as much as i've seen top gun i was much more about this movie
6: when you were talking about full disclosure the music playing i was trying to remember what it was i was like i don't
5: really i but, but, but the mic's so, living every note of that music yeah, i love which, it but
6: i th- i think that's funny because for me i am i am i'm am very gay i think that the opening is sexier and ho- hotter and more like more t- t- titillating i guess i'll say titillating i I've the opening for me, and I, I can tell you every beat. I know every cut. I've seen it way more than I've seen the rest of the movie. <laughs> but then I'm like, wait, what is this music
5: he's talking about? Yeah, no, I've never noticed the fucking music. I the only bit I remember is Sarandon just looking so awkward and vulnerable, and it's like, oh, that's kind of cute. She's not really into this, but I never thought it was erotic ever. But that, that opening with the leg, the thighs being opened and the feet, oh, the, that thigh open. I'm like, I see, hormones everywhere. It's like, oh, my God, this is like the hottest fucking thing I've ever seen in my life.
6: As somebody who grew up watching Labyrinth and being like, like, kind of low key in love with David Bowie, but not understanding it because you were too young. Seeing this then as like a, an elder teenager, I'm like, oh yeah, David Bowie, I always knew. I
5: get it. I'm here. Yeah, David Bowie was personal for about 90% of my corruption, I think, in Labyrinth. I mean, he's basically got his cock out the whole time.
4: Yeah, he's not hiding anything down there, that's for sure. I could re- read the year on the quarter in his pocket. It's like when me and Heavy
5: Drain talked about Labyrinth, we were talking about how we would have just ditched that kid to go and live with the goblins. It is interesting how you react to the surround because I don't read that as remotely erotic.
4: Yeah, for me, it was all, all erotic, all the time.
5: You know, and it's lesbian vampire, and the, the eroticism is usually within the sex scenes. To go back to Soledad Miranda, you know, in Lesbos, totally hot. This is just like, this is like, <laughs> and there's you, you've got the soundtrack. This, to which to me is just like some non-soundtrack, <laughs> like some classical music playing. Uh, that is, that is interesting. That is interesting.
4: I mean, the music through this whole movie means so much to me, and especially those weird, like, kind of noises that they'll do to just inject into things, and... We didn't mention the uh, amazing pre-reunion of To Live and Die in L.A., where we've got Willem Dafoe and John Pankow showing up around the phone booth. And I was so excited to see just little young Willem Dafoe with that whole, how about it, lady? That moment was great. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First, we'll, first up, we'll hear from author Whitley Strieber. After that, we'll hear from screenwriter Michael Thomas, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B-movie reel. Do
0: Shoot it. Shoot it.
4: <laughs> That's about the describes it, yeah. All
6: right, everybody stay here.
4: We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Be
6: Known Throughout the Ages is an instant classic. <laughs>
7: we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> <laughs> flying limbs,
4: <laughs> from I called it in my notes.
0: What could go wrong?
4: We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there have been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. Please, no! By this point, I had completely forgotten any (laughs) semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun.
7: Check us out at SaturdayBeMovieReel.com.
6: Our future depends on it. Make it safe.
4: What was the inspiration for The Hunger? There were two things that happened.
7: First, when I was in the advertising business way long ago, one of our clients was Chanel. And Catherine Deneuve was the spokesperson for Chanel. I never met her, but I saw a lot of video and images and, you know, outtakes. And because we were making commercials with her in it, and I, they were being made in Paris, but we were seeing all of the dailies in New York. And so I kind of got to know her as a human being, not just as an image. So that was there. And then I believe I might have read Anne Rice's book, Interview with a Vampire, and I had published The Wolfen, and I thought to myself, what if we reversed this? What if we empowered the female, the dangerous feminine? And I brought that up with Anne, and she said, what a great idea, because the male is always the dangerous one, never the woman. but this is profoundly empowering to the, f- the female distalt. And so, you know, we started talking about this idea of a a woman vampire and w- emerged was that she would have to be, as it eventually ended up in the book, part of the justice of the earth. In other words, part of the food chain, but at the same time, kind, a warmth there. And it became a terribly interesting character to think about. Then I eventually came up with a consort, a man, a human. But why would he be her friend and lover and not her victim? And I thought to myself, he has to be both, but how do we work that out? And that's where the the long lifespan of the lovers came from. And then I thought, she's not human. She's another species. So therefore, she doesn't have the same sexual politics that we do at all. And she does not have necessarily human sexuality. And that's where her female lover came from. I tried to make her an empowering vision that was also empowering in another way in that she was detached from the conventions of sexual politics. Those were all things that went into the creation of Miriam Blaylock.
4: Talking about how she is so aged and this figure of the earth, it does really tie into Wolfen and just the way that the Wolfen had been around forever, basically, and just were another species. I like this way of having these monsters in the world, but they're actually something else entirely. They're not people that have turned. They are other creatures completely.
7: Wolfen and the vampires in the hunger are definitely separate species. The wolfen are not a version of wolves. They're not people turned into wolves. And the vampire can alter a human being, but is not one herself or himself. I did this for two reasons. First, I wanted to explore the predator-prey relationship, and therefore also the balance of nature, and the the sense of that balance. Because, you know, we always think, look at these cartoons these stupid cartoons the wolf is always the bad guy it's bad to eat the rabbit it's not bad to eat the rabbit it's simply your nature and i wanted to explore that and to explore that in the context of a sense of threat that would make that would be meaningful to the reader and ultimately the film and so that was part of the reason i did it and Part of the reason is that I know predator-prey relationships quite well, and the prey never completely understands the predator. In some predator-prey relationships, the prey doesn't understand the predator at all. But in most of them, the prey is wary, but not so wary that he can't be caught. That's the case in in the hunger, but not in the wolfen. In the wolfen, it's different. The Prey does not understand the predator in any way whatsoever. And the predator uses his intelligence and his, his set, the senses he's equipped with to make sure that doesn't change because his invisibility is a part of his power. In the hunger, that's less true because there's a seductive element in the relationship in the hunger. Miriam will seduce her prey. She won't simply leap on her prey like the wolfen do and take take them out. She draws them in. She's more like a cat. The wolfen are more like dogs or wolves. They're canines. But Miriam is more feline. And they do like to tease their prey. And, you know, you think, oh, how awful. Look at that cat torturing that little mouse, which happens all the time. But then you think it's nature. There are energies in the predator-prey relationship that go beyond the conventional ones that we understand. There are reasons that the cat will do that, I think. And since I don't understand it either, nobody does, that have to do with energies that we literally don't understand. There's The cat's getting something out of that. And there's a kind of terrible ecstasy in the mouse that's being tortured, too. And, you know, it's like the old moose. When a herd of moose are attacked by wolves, the oldest moose will stand guard and in the way. And if he is injured or sick, he may or may not defend himself. Sometimes not at all. He will give himself. He will sacrifice himself. And we have in our species remnants of that instinct in human sacrifice. But of course, in since we're... F- So, backed up with ideas, we don't see it quite that way. We don't see it so heroically. But if you look at the... we're doing is we're giving someone to the gods in order to appease them. But if you look at the expression on the face of Toland Man in the bog, you see an ecstasy there. And that ecstasy is a big part of the hunger's energy, the book's energy, is the ecstasy of the prey.
4: The wolf in are very much on the outside of society, working the construction jobs, those kind of things, whereas Miriam is much more of the elite. And it feels almost like you're making a a very conscious choice to have the haves and the have-nots, whereas the haves have this power as well, the power of vampirism. Wolfen
7: are intentional outsiders. They can't fit in. They can't fit in. You know, coyotes can barely fit in in this world. But if we saw a wolf in outside, we would definitely know something was very wrong. So we're not going to see it. And I got that idea from two things, from a story I read about coy dogs uh, who are very smart and can live in in the human world right here. And we don't even know it. I was walking down the literary walk in the middle of the night in New York, in Central Park. It wasn't the middle of the night. It was about 11, but it was late enough to where there was no one in the park. Ann used to say, why in the world do you go out there? You're going to get mugged. I said, no, I'm not. No mugger, the muggers will starve to death in Central Park at night. There are not going to be any muggers there. So I was walking along, and I found that I was being shadowed. And I thought, what a fool I've been. <laughs> there are muggers in the park. Now I'm all alone. It turned out to be a pack of dogs, wild dogs, some big, some little some very innocuous looking, but they were all more interested in me than I felt comfortable with. I went home, and I told Anne about this the next day, and that's how the Wolfen were born. I mean, I'm digressing a little bit. I apologize. And I've said that The the Hunger was sort of born out of Catherine Deneuve and, and out of the exploration of sexual politics. But there's another level to it. And that the farther up you go in the world of the elite, of the elite human beings, the more vampires there really are. There are vampires all over the place in that level. You can see them in politics. You can see them throwing their billion-dollar weight around all over the place. They don't want physical control. They're not physical vampires. But they want more. And that is... Where the idea of the psychic vampire comes in. And there's a psychological level to Miriam too. I've explored that in depth in a a series of vampire series. I tried to, I tried to sell, but no one would buy, explored that in more depth. But it's very interesting to me. The social power of the wealthy and the way it sucks something out. Not all. I mean, there are a lot of good rich people. I know there's quite a few actually. But there are those that will suck you dry just because of what they are.
4: You mentioned Central Park, and the thing that I really like about, well, both of these books, but especially with The Hunger, is the location and the social strata that are on Manhattan. You know, being able to go from one side of the park to the other and seeing such a different world at times. I really appreciate what a sense of place you give these books.
7: No, thanks. I wish I could still publish novels. But no one will buy anything from Whitley Strieber, the rectal probe man, unfortunately. my I've ruined my reputation. So I've got a lot of novels stacked up here that I've never even showed to anybody. I think maybe one or two of them have a Miriam in them, actually. There's another one, The Last Vampire, that has Miriam in it.
4: Yeah, I was curious why you or how you decided to go back to Miriam after 20 years. I fell in love with Miriam when I was writing The Hunger.
7: And 20 years later, I was still in love with her. And I saw my career as a novelist getting into trouble. People were buying fewer and fewer of my books. And I could see an end. I could see a time when I would not be able to publish novels anymore. And the reason, there's a lot of reasons for it. Part is my reputation. Part is the way the publishing industry works. And you have to basically publish the same sort of thing again and again and again. Or you have to be a literary novelist. And I was wasn't. I was a genre novelist. So that's how I was typed. And I knew I could publish another book about Miriam. And I wanted to write one. And I thought it might well be my last novel or close to it. So that was why I went back to her. The movie's under option. And if it actually gets made, I will go back. I will write another book. I'm not going to say about Miriam. I'm going to say with Miriam. Because even talking here, I can feel Miriam returning in my life and saying, Whitley, Whitley, I don't, we're running out of time. You're not a vampire. You're an old guy now. You better hurry. I'm still in love. We're both in love. How soon after the book is published
4: do the rights sell to Hollywood?
7: Within a few weeks. I mean, it was immediate. And many years later, I got the rights back. So I own the rights. Now, other people, pretty big people actually, a big production house with a deal at Warner Brothers is is interested in making it and has adoption and they've been working on it for a while now.
4: Yeah, frankly, I was surprised that there wasn't a television series based on it because the world is so rich and can just go on for miles in either direction. It's very strange. There was this
7: odd Showtime thing where they they had David Bowie in it and it sort of looked like The Hunger. But I would have had to fight them for money. And they owed me and they still do. They they should have paid me. But it would have cost me more in lawyer's fees to get what I could out of them. So that never – and it didn't go anywhere anyway, undeservedly so. There could be such a beautiful series based on Miriam and the Hunger. That would be a lovely thing to see. But it's a movie that they're thinking about.
4: I know a lot of authors are very ambivalent about – their work being turned into films. What are your thoughts about Tony Scott's The Hunger?
7: I went to the London School of Film Technique, as it was called then. It's now the London Film School. Where Mike Lee has a big role. He didn't then, but he does now. And so it's a pretty prestigious organization. It was a very good film school in a big, ramshackle, wonderful old building in Soho. But I learned loads of film history. I used to live at the BFI, the British Film Institute on the other side of the Thames, We would spend our days and nights there watching movie after movie after movie, old movies. And then we would discuss them at the film school and we would make films. And it was just a wonderful year. I love the movies. So I have no ambivalence about my things being turned into movies. I was a little disappointed that Superstorm, which is such a cool title, was turned into The Day After Tomorrow, which is a slightly less cool title, but more meaningful in many ways. I I can understand Roland's thinking in that regard. So, were you involved at all with the making of the film? Of The Hunger? Absolutely not. I wasn't involved in it in any way whatsoever. It was his first film, and the last thing he wanted anywhere near him was the writer of the novel.
4: That was made crystal clear to me. So, was it just serendipity that Catherine Deneuve was cast?
7: I don't know. I recall saying to the producer that she was my choice. I don't think it was serendipity. I think she wanted to do it. I think they did show her the book and told her that it had been written with her in mind and she believed it and she was right too.
4: What are you working on these days? I'm working
7: on a non-fiction, big non-fiction book called Them, which explores the nature and aims of these strange presences that I call the visitors and that everyone and their uncle seems to think are aliens except me, and I don't know what they are because I don't know where they were from. I've never been told anything about that. But... They represent the most complex human experience that we've ever come across in the, all of our history. And so I'm very interested in that. And I've got a novel that I've been working on for a couple of years about a changeling. And I'm writing that and loving every minute of it. What happens is I write during the day, I work on them. And then when night falls and I work on the novel. I don't, it'll probably just go in another dry I doubt I'll even send it to anyone, but I love it. So it's a, it's a wonderful experience to write and the characters are terrific. They're not vampires or anything. It's about a child and his mother primarily, and she knows he's not who he seems to be. And so does he and his, their struggle to be mother and son is opened up the interior journey and energy of that extraordinary relationship between a little boy and his mother is explored in this novel in a completely new way
4: i love that whole writing one book during the day and one in the evening or at night that's i never i hardly
7: ever sleep i'm not a big sleeper i sleep from about midnight until three and i meditate from three until three thirty, and i sleep until six And then I'm up, and then my day starts again. I rarely watch TV or anything. I mostly just work. I sit here alone, and I work. It's love. You don't do that from dedication. You do it from love. You were working on, was it a podcast or a radio series for a while? Oh, I still have my podcast. It's called Dreamland. In fact, right after we do this interview, I'm going to interview someone on Dreamland about the strange ruins from the past that can't be explained, like the gigantic granite platform at Baalbek and all these wonderful things that are so mysterious. And he's got an idea about how they were done. The podcast has been running since 1998. It runs once a week. It's called Dreamland. It's on my website, unknowncountry.com. And it is all over the place. It has lots of viewers, lots
4: of listeners and viewers. It's both audio and video. Well, thank you so much for your time. It is always such a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure too. We must do it again. Obviously, I want to ask you about The Hunger, but do you mind if I ask you, because that was a pretty early script for you. I was curious how you got into the business altogether.
2: First thing I did, I think, my agent probably put me in touch with, I think we saw that Catherine Deneuve was in it, and if she was here, you know, I was going to do it. Jesus, I I can't remember who was in charge of the meeting, but we all got together Bowie and Susan Sarandon and so on. It was. It's probably to do with Tony Scott. Tony was a mate of mine, and, and we were working on something, and then he rang me up and said, "Look, there's this thing with Catherine Deneuve. I don't know where we met, of Paris or or Berlin or somewhere. But yeah, it was. It was really Tony who. He was ready to go. It was financed and ready to shoot. And so the thing we were working on, we put aside and jumped right into it. But it was, he was very impatient to get moving, you know what it's like. And suddenly there was this thing where you could, you know, start next week.
4: What was your experience at that point? Had you worked with him on commercials or other projects, or had you done things on your own?
2: I hadn't done any commercials with him. I can't remember how I met him now, but he, but i have known him for you know, years, uh he was basically rich because he uh, from, from a career in commercials and he wanted to do features. And so we started out of on one thing, and then this thing sort of came in out of the blue. Somebody that he knew who was on the production, one of the producers, I guess. And so yeah, we we turned around and
4: did it. How did you approach the material? How did you? go about actually adapting The Hunger
2: I think there was a half-hearted screenplay that already you know there but was a piece of shit basically and we changed the thing to suit the cast and I just thought of it as a you know a sort of genre thriller I think that, that that's what Tony was good at and we started shooting right away we did it all in London it was all shot in London You know that was that that had all been set up beforehand, Uh, and so we sort of moved into uh, you know something that was up and running.
4: The original screenplay, I imagine, that was the James Costigan version. Is that right?
2: I can't remember the guy's name. Very very limp. You know, we both met Barry, and Barry was so charismatic uh, that you knew he was like a movie star, really. And then and then Casper at that point was, you know, the most beautiful winner in the world. <laughs> yeah, which it's very much that I, I did it because I was working with Tony and Tony and it fell in Tony's lap. I probably I think probably uh, Ridley had some some part in it, you because know, they were very close. They were the only people that trusted each other. And and I thought, boy, this is a piece of piss, you know, you just <laughs> Yeah, how come everybody says the movie business is so difficult? This is, you know, I just walked right into it.
4: It must have been something tailoring these roles for Deneuve and Bowie.
2: You know, he came in the room and the room sort of took a deep breath. You know, he he had real impact because he was he was much taller than you probably picture. You know, he was really a big guy, um, and wore you know crazy clothes. It just seems like this guy is a star, you know, and, and I think he was. We didn't have any choice about Boeing, but there was some choice about Jasmine's nerve because she wasn't really, hadn't done anything like this in English, you know, in, in English, or in, uh, but we both were wrapped up, wrapped in her and casting is a, part of the successful failure of a movie, you know, if you if you get the cast wrong then then you're fucked. You know, casting is make the show work.
4: You were also credited around this time for a movie called Countrymen. Did you work on that?
2: I'd done that before. That was Jamaica. And I had a lot of history in Jamaica. You know, bear in mind at the time I was basically writing for Rolling Stone magazine. I guess I'd done the story for them and Countryman was a real person in Jamaica, sort of a prophet, um, and with, with you know a big rastafari. It was the beginning of rastafarianism. So I I been down there as a journalist to do, to do this story on Jamaica, which was where I started off with um, the most famous uh, uh, Jamaican. Movie star, so. whose name I can now recall, a very cheap picture. We we got money from Chris Blackwell at Island Records. Nice little movie. A lot of people like it now. You know, it's kind of cool here, But yeah, that was the first thing I did before, and I'd done that, I guess, before
4: The Hunger. With The Hunger, was it one of those where you actually got to stick around, or did Tony say, "Oh, thanks for the script. I'll see you later"?
2: I was there quite a bit, and because it was London, it was easy. I mean, I went there when Deneuve was uh, shooting, you know. No, he didn't
4: mind me being there. You seem to have traveled around a lot between Countryman and Jamaica and then Burke and Wills just a few years later. Was that fully an Australian production?
2: Yeah, but I'm Australian. I grew up in Australia, so I'm always there. for me to go to Australia, then I'll probably write the movie
4: for you. That must have been something, writing about Burke and Wills, because they're so famous, just what they had done. I, I even remember there was a parody movie about them. Was that Wills and Burke or something like that?
2: There was, which, which uh, wasn't that good, I don't think. The rest was a guy called Graham Clifford. I mean, he asked me if did I want to do it, and, and, I, and I did, because it's a I mean, Australia. You know, this is a big story, and and for a country without history, it's about the only history story I can think of. Somebody asked him if he felt like doing it, and and then he asked me if I wanted to do
4: it, and and if uh, we we went ahead and did it. The second one of yours that I definitely remember seeing was Scandal, because I remember that caused quite a sensation in the late '80s when that came out.
2: Yeah, it sure did. That was what we that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. I I'd done a few things in between, but yeah, that that was very close to my heart. I'd had a sort of crush on her long before I knew that she was gonna be in it. So yeah, I, I dived right in. Scarlet is about you know, these two women that destroyed a country. And she was I remember when I was a You know, a kid. She was the first woman that I ever thought that I got devoted to. You know, I sort of canceled Bridget Bardot, and and I was crazy about her. And so there's a guy called Joe Boyd, who's an old friend of mine, who's basically in the music business. But he asked me to do it, and, and said she was going to be in it. That was, once again, something I left at. What are you working on these days? I'm doing a thing in uh, North Korea. It's uh, a pretty grisly story but it's about the uh, concentration camps there in North North Korea and uh, the, the the people who escaped. It's like an escape story, really. Mm-hmm. But it's all about, you know, I mean, what's what's going on in North Korea is unspeakable. And nobody seems to really care much or even know much. I'm doing that with some people actually in Amsterdam uh, who who I've known for a while. I'm just sort of trying to research that now. I don't think I've ever met a Korean in my life. I'm going to have to go to uh, South Korea to see what, you know, and and we're going to have to have obviously a Korean director. But there seem to be quite a few Korean Korean directors these days. There's a bunch of them at Cannes this year, I know. I'm still sort of figuring out how to do it, but that's about it. The culture of North Korea is to dob other people in, to betray other people. Because these people have grown up in uh, North Korea. They don't know that there's a world, you know. They don't know that that's not what life's like. They have this cruel culture of, you know, you turn in your mother and she gets hanged and you think that's an achievement. Um, and there's a lot of horrible stuff <laughs> that's in this memoir that uh, I thought, well, let's go for it. It's it's quite hard to write about Koreans because, you know, I don't know anything, what it's like to be a Korean. And I never usually write about any anywhere that I haven't been. I sort of make better condition, you know. As a journalist I know that. but if you go to the place often just peels off the wall, you know, you'll find out things which you'd never know if you hadn't gone there.
4: Did you have to do much research for like the thirty three or the devil's double?
2: Devil? Uh yeah, yes, in in both cases. Uh a lot of research and a lot of, you know, travel. My first step is to sort of go to the place where it happened, usually and that usually sort of kicks, kicks you off and uh, and then, you know, if it's history or something like that then, yeah, there's a bit of research. or if you can find somebody who is actually, you know, alive and, uh, and you can talk to, then I'll do that too.
4: Do you have any favorite memories from the making of The Hunger?
2: There was a party sequence where everybody got naked. We all joined in and (laughs) that was quite good fun. You feel very possessive of anything that you've, you know, spent a few long dark nights trying to get it right and there's always, you know, the director always fucks something up that it would have been a lot better if they'd listened to me. You know, in most cases, I've been part of the production if I can be, even though I'm just sort of, you know, hanging around in the background. There hasn't really been a movie where I've been sort of banned.
4: Well, Mr. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. I'm glad we were able to connect.
2: Yeah, sure. If I can help you out, give me a call.
4: We are back, and we are talking about the Hunger. And I think we've talked a lot about uh, some of the stuff we were going to talk about. I was, I, I had forgotten. I feel so guilty when I was talking with Streber, and I was just like, I'm surprised no one ever made a TV show out of the Hunger, forgetting that Tony Scott directed, and I think he produced a TV series that was on, I want to say Showtime, called The Hunger. Basically, basically just ripped him off was just like oh yeah no i'll just take the name fuck you (laughs) and there's at least three episodes over two seasons that have vampires in them and i'm just like what the fuck man why would you do that tony scott he was kind of a piece of shit i think i'm trying to remember the episode that we had ginger lynn on and her talking about how she was given an audition for a role
3: my first big audition was for beverly hills cop two or three. And Tony Scott was a director. Uh, Suze Randall actually got me the audition. And I was supposed to play this actress or this, uh, this waitress in, in a a cafe who mistakes one of the leading men for president Ford. And it's a lighthearted, funny, silly little scene. I, you know, I, I hired a private acting coach and I worked for weeks on this and I get into the audition. I'm in the waiting room and the secretary, I'm wearing this little white dress that had a triangle cut out. So my stomach was exposed. And the woman says to me, uh, are you wearing underwear? This is, this is, this is paramount, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was, it was, a, I, I didn't know what to say. And I, so I said, no, I'm, it wasn't. And she said, hold on a minute. And <laughs> leave the room. And she comes back and she says, well, we don't have any underwear for you. You're going to have to go in as is. Okay. So I'm already thinking, you know, this is different in porn. Nobody ever asked me if I was wearing underwear. Nobody ever had a casting couch. Nobody ever asked me to get naked, uh, except to himself for my Polaroids or unless I was shooting. But, you know, in an interview or an audition, you, you know, there was no, no boundaries were crossed not one whatsoever. I never had a problem in, in the film industry. And I get into the actual room and Tony Scott is there. There are two other men in the room and I believe a woman. And the first thing Tony Scott says to me is, um, can we get a topless or a nude Polaroid? And I, I I said, no, (laughs) I don't think that we need to do that. And he said, well, how about a topless? And I said, no, and he, he was a little bit, he kind of brushed me off. and went, fine, let's just read for the role. Okay. And it, it, he was not nice. And I, I, you know, had rehearsed this for weeks. I was ready. I played it with all my gusto and I was spot on and felt good about it. And we get done. And I just go through the first reading and he says, you know what? I want you to think of yourself as the biggest slut in the world. You want to fuck everybody you see that's the character I want you to play. And I stood there and I, I started to cry. And I, I said, you know what? I, I don't think I'm right for this role. And I left and I still have the little thing that they give you. when you drive onto the gate at the studio, it was my first pass to get into a major studio. And I, I saved it and I showed it to my grandma. And, you know, I was like, "Yeah, I'm at Paramount now. It was one of the most embarrassing, uh, awful experiences I've ever had. May, you know, they had no intention whatsoever of her casting me in the film. They wanted Ginger Lynn in there, and it was a joke. You know, let's get her in here, let's get her naked. Besides that, nothing, they had no intentions of hiring me, and it really took me aback. It was like a slap in the face with mainstream Hollywood. Here I'm thinking... Yeah, I've gone from, you know, small roles in B-movies to leads in B-movies. Now moving up to small roles in A-films. You know, I'm, I'm moving on. I'm moving up. This is going to happen for me. And it just punched me in the stomach.
6: Oh, well, I don't <laughs> like oh that at all. Oh, my God. <laughs>
4: But yeah, he was executive producer of the Hunger TV series from 97 and 99 it ran. And they even had, it was Terrence Stamp was like the Crypt Keeper in the first season and David Bowie was the Crypt Keeper in the second season. Imagine that. I had completely forgotten about that. So I really put my foot in it when I said that to Streeper. <laughs> Felt bad about that.
5: I'd never seen it. I never saw him. Um, I never saw that. I don't know. I don't think we got it over here, though. So why did I think Tony Scott was queer? Well, obviously, after the Ginger Lynn story, that's... Uh... <laughs> but then I thought Chris Sarandon was probably Susan's brother, which would have meant she married her brother. So, you know, I'm not very good on this uh, celebrities. Don't ever ask me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe because there is... um. Well, there's the whole Top Gun thing, isn't there? But... The Hunger is a queer film, and it goes beyond sort of just being that het lesbian. Uh, and I think that's why it's become so iconic, especially within like the the queer community. That whole idea of Miriam has become quite a icon. So I don't know. I don't, but then I thought Neil Jordan was fucking gay till like about eight weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I just, yeah, there's something about it that is not, it's not, I think, despite the fact that that was obviously etched into your brain, but, uh, in a commercial sense, it's not playing to the lesbian vampire crowd. It's doing something else. And so I took that as a sensitivity and you've just ruined all that now, Mike. Shattered that illusion that I created for myself for 10 minutes. I'm, dis- I'm disillusioned feel, too, yeah. so you disappointed so both of us, Mike. This is a Mike. sensitive man, <laughs> a sensitive
4: artist. He felt like the blueprint for Michael Bay. Just, like, for me, The Hunger is totally... Not?
5: everything else he did? I just <laughs> have this one film.
4: Well, The Hunger is the exception for me, because then after that, it's like all of these action-y type films. I mean, True Romance, we're going to cover that next year. I am not a fan crimson tide there's some good parts to it enemy of the state sucks there were a lot of things that he did where i'm just like ah this is not good like i had to re-watch domino before i talked with richard kelly and i'm like ah i don't remember liking this and i watched it and i was like yeah i really i don't like it for me like he started to then start to stray into almost like oliver stone territory with the multi-format stuff that he was doing deja vu was decent i still haven't seen man on fire i just have no desire to see it same thing with spy game i just heard that that was terrible but yeah there's just a lot of stuff that I, he just was kind of a subpar action director for a lot of years
6: i like unstoppable
4: i haven't seen that one
6: <laughs> i don't know it's got a train and denzel on it I'm yeah sorry.
4: he and denzel definitely made a lot of movies together
6: I've seen a lot of his movies because of that. I I'm a bit of a Denzel completist, so I'll watch pretty much anything. And and yeah, they do cross paths. And I there's some stuff I do like, but there's validity to what you're saying, absolutely, Mike. I, there's things that just lose me. Like I don't, I'm not. I feel like I'm not the audience, and I don't know who the
5: audience is. Yeah, it's interesting. I just assumed that he'd just been forced to do that because I'd obviously created this uh, sensitive artist persona, which you've just ruined. And now I'm thinking, looking at his filmography and saying that she did make a lot of awful films, um, many of which I've seen and can remember nothing about. I saw Man on Fire. I couldn't tell you a single thing about it. He made that fucking A-Team remake. Ugh.
4: He made the A-Team remake? Or did he just produce T- it?
5: 2010. He was the producer on it. He brought that into the... Uh, into the universe
4: i mean he directed one of my favorite films he directed the last boy scout which i love a lot but that's about it you know there weren't a lot of films like pretty much for me it's the hunger last boy scout and then i'd be hard-pressed make maybe deja vu maybe crimson tide up there it sounds like i have to see unstoppable
6: I don't know if I'm advocating for that. I'm just saying I, I like, I enjoy it.
4: it. One thing I do have to say that I like about him, you know, you, you mentioned Denzel, he definitely had a lot of very strong african american roles you know things like the fan with wesley snipes or you know even enemy of the state using will smith you know so it, that was nice that he was able to do that and it wasn't just all white people all the time i mean you can't get more whiter than days of thunder
5: well, we'll, we'll you know try and resurrect his reputation slightly i can't get over the polaroid's man that's just uh, that's just gross I still love the film, though. i just have to separate it in my head.
4: (laughs) Rewatching it, I was as taken with this as I'd ever been and was just really impressed with this. And I'm so glad that we were able to talk about it.
5: Yeah, I think it's, I do think even though a lot of people see it as iconic now, it's still quite underrated. Especially within the 80s stuff, everyone's like all over the Lost, I mean, I love the fucking Lost Boys, but everyone's all over the Near, Dark, or the Lost Boys, and then it's like the Hunger, like, kind of just at the side.
6: I feel like people know what it is more now, and I feel like people, it's on lists and people talk about it, but then when when you actually, like, people haven't, a lot of people haven't seen it. And I and I don't know what that is. It may be because of those initial bad reviews or the, the being labelled as too artsy or, or vague or whatever. But I like like I think Kat you said at the beginning, like if you if it's been a while since you saw it, go back and see it because it might hit different now.
5: I think it's a really rewarding film and I'm glad I gave it another chance later on. I just, just don't think I was ready for it in my teens. I wanted Boobs and blood and slashes and action and all the usual vampire stuff, you know? So, some existential philosophical piece on the meaning of life and death. <laughs> I was not ready for that at all. And then, after that opening, when it just that was down, I thought the whole film was David Bowie in the waiting
4: rooms. I'm really surprised that this doesn't have a better release out there. That the commentary that we're talking about was released in 2004 for the DVD. I don't think there's any other extras that are out there for this.
5: Again, it's just been really ignored. I don't know if that's licensing or if it's something to do with the music, maybe. Which music-heavy films always have an issue. I don't know what the problem is with that. You think someone like Shout Factory would have at least done it?
4: I haven't just gushed about how much I love Catherine Deneuve this episode and talked about how gorgeous she is. But I think I've done that enough because every single time she's in something, I will just go on and on and on. I mean, Belle de Jour, Jesus Christ. And this is over 10 years later, and she looks so beautiful. She looks almost as good today as she did back then. She, it looks like she is a vampire.
5: She's incredible. I mean, I haven't seen all of her work. She's been in fucking loads of films, but she's like Isabel Cooper. She just, I've never seen her in anything that I haven't 100% loved. And and another one, like Sarandon, is he, in some difficult roles, it's like the Cagner. The... <laughs> Makes strange choices. Yeah, and yep. she was like the typical, like, I guess Sarandon is slightly more. You know, she she hasn't got that big sort of uh model beauty sort of thing. But Deneuve was like the French stereotype. She could have been like Bardo, but she was working with Bunuel and doing all this like weird art house, working with Marco Ferreri. She was still doing really even in recent years, working with uh Francois Ozone. And she is she is just a force of nature. An absolute force of nature, that woman.
4: All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
0: The time has come for Jolene to grow up.
4: I'm not 12 years old anymore.
0: She is about to unlock a secret. She's too young to understand.
4: There's this boy here who is so incredibly gorgeous. I just want to die.
0: She knows what she wants. But it's what she doesn't know that can hurt her. Jolene, you want answer? When innocence. Have you heard? Done it? Becomes seduction. Are you scared? When friendship. Don't worry, Jolene. I'll protect you. Becomes betrayal. I trusted you. When love becomes terror.
3: (laughs) Scared now? I'm talking
5: teenage
0: psycho killer. Now she is trapped far from home. Where you can trust no one, especially the one who loves you.
2: What
0: you Drew Barrymore.
4: Far from home. Growing up can be Murder. That's right. We are kicking off November 2022 with a look at Far From Home. Until then, I want to thank this week's co hosts, Christine and Kat. So, Christine, what's the latest with you?
6: Writing things on the internet, writing about movies. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter and and see those writing things. Uh, It's Xteen underscore makepeace. You know,
4: just keep them busy. And, Kat, what's going on in your world?
5: My Jean Roland documentary is, prem- it's just played at Strasbourg Festival. Um, it did Fantasia as well. It did Fright Fest in London. It's just, did uh, Strasbourg and it's playing at Sitges on Monday, which will obviously be ages away, ages gone when this, when this airs, but it's doing some good, cool festivals. So I'm really, really excited about that. And my first project as a Blu-ray producer is now out in the wild. Actually, wasn't the first one I did, but it's the first one to arrive, which was from Arrow Films, which is Gothic Fantastico, which is like a box set of four different uh, Italian Gothic films, of which I helped to uh, curate these. And one, I was so... I love all of the films, but... When I'm really excited for the restoration and I've seen it and it's gorgeous is the witch, which is a very strange uh, avant-garde take on Italian Gothic, but you've also got the third eye, Lady Morgan's vengeance and Blancheville monster on that. And I co-produced that one with Michael McKenzie at arrow, but all that work, I was doing that a year ago and then, you know, you do these things and then a year goes by and then it suddenly turns up and you're like, yeah, <laughs> Get to look at it. So I'm excited. Excited about that. Excited about the Roland film. Yeah, it's really cool. Still doing my Patreon, and Ellinger's Confession of a Cineset, so you can check me over there. Largely ranting about class and politics at the moment, though. So it's nice to get a break and talk about, you know, sexy vampires.
4: Well, thanks again, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I'm working on, all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.